Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. This week, we have two interviews. The first is with two researchers in Britain who took a critical look at a term that has been often used in recent months to describe a stew of problems in the information ecosystem, the term infodemic. And the second is with the authors of the best-selling book An Ugly Truth, Inside Facebook's Battle for Domination, by New York Times reporters Shira Frankel and Cecilia Kong. I got to speak with Shira and Cecilia about the reception to the book and whether the type of change it suggests is necessary at Facebook is possible under its current management and structure. First, the infodemic. The term was reintroduced into the public discourse in a substantial way at the outset of the COVID-19 pandemic by the World Health Organization. Here is a news report from February 2020 on Al Jazeera about the World Health Organization's warning about the phenomenon. Rumors about emerging diseases can and do have real-world consequences. With so much information out there on social media, both accurate or not, it can be difficult to find trustworthy sources of information. And what the World Health Organization is calling an infodemic about the coronavirus is, they say, just as dangerous as the disease itself. It's impossible to predict which direction this epidemic will take. We're concerned about the levels of rumor and misinformation that are hampering the response. The WHO says false information about prevention measures or fake so-called cures are potentially harmful to public health. The World Health Organization then went on to make an infomercial about the term. We're not just fighting an epidemic, we're fighting an infodemic. This famous quote from WHO Director General has been widely shared. So what is an infodemic? An infodemic is an excessive amount of information about a problem, making it difficult to identify a solution. During a health emergency, an infodemic can drown out reliable information and allow rumors to spread more easily, impeding an effective public health response. Why is it happening now? Information can spread faster than a virus. With rapid growth of digital communications and social media platforms, information spreads fast from online to our physical lives. And how does it affect us? Online information can negatively affect our psychology, daily lives, and behaviors, worsening the ongoing crisis at hand. Infodemics make it difficult. The term has now been widely adopted in the news media, employed as an organizing idea for dozens of academic and think tank panel discussions about mis- and disinformation, and cited in academic papers. But where did the term come from, and is it useful? For more, I turn to Chico Camargo and Felix Simon, who just authored a paper, Autopsy of a Metaphor, The Origins, Use, and Blind Spots of the Infodemic, which was published in late July. I'm Felix Simon. I'm a doctoral researcher at the Oxford Internet Institute at the University of Oxford. And I also work as a research assistant at the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism and um, a Night News Innovation Fellow at the Tau Center at London University. My name is Chico Camargo. I'm a lecturer in computer science at the University of Exeter in the UK, and I'm also a research associate at the Oxford Internet Institute at the University of Oxford. We're going to talk about this term, infodemic, and this paper that you've put together around it, um, which I found very interesting. First, just start a little bit with why you took up this challenge, why you decided to, to delve into the background of this term, and, and what its history is. 
So it's funny, this conversation between Felix and I started actually on Twitter. We were just both ranting about the same thing at the same time. And Felix comes from a more journalism like background and I come from a very STEM heavy background. A lot of people doing computer science and physics and maths. And we were both ranting about this term infodemic being sort of a loose catch-all umbrella thing for any spread of concerning information during the pandemic. And the reason I'm saying concerning is because of this umbrella catch-all term. We had both noticed that there were people using the term infodemic to refer to wrong information about COVID-19, things like drinking tea cures the disease, but also some people were using it to talk about anyone posting things online or to talk about how there's a lot of news today and it feels like there's some kind of overabundance of the information. People were just using this term so loosely and we both felt that our concern wasn't just academic pettiness, but rather that this was a bit concerning, kind of like how terms like fake news can be weaponized, can be used to kind of feed some notion that there is a crisis and governments need to act and that, that can all be very dangerous. And we decided to, okay, stop ranting about it on Twitter and, and to actually write something together, thinking hard about these issues. That's how it started. Tell me a little bit about the history of the term, because you trace it back to actually, interestingly, David Rothkopf, who first used the term, I think, in 2003, or the first, the earliest kind of instance of it that you were able to find. Yeah, I think that's that's correct. And he basically, um, if I remember correctly, he coined it in a Washington Post op-ed. Again, if I remember correctly, around the outbreak of um, SARS, this is the first um, SARS epidemic at the time. And... It was interesting because after we had published our academic paper, uh, David actually got in touch on Twitter and we had this interesting little conversation where he briefly spoke about the term, what he had intended with it. It was basically, it was very limited. He didn't mean for it to, to sort of go overboard and, and turn into this, this current um, thing that we're seeing online. And it's interesting because basically when Dave Rothkopf coined the term back in 2003, it wasn't widely used afterwards. So you had a couple of entries on Google Scholar with various papers on picking up. You had some news coverage, but it, was, it, it didn't really took off like, like other terms. And then suddenly, um, at the beginning of 2020, uh, when the WHO used it the first time in one of the situation reports, and it was then subsequently picked up by their director general and other people, that was sort of the point where it really took off and um, where suddenly lots of journalists, academics, policymakers, all these different groups, civil society, started jumping on the term and um, started using it for their various purposes, as Chico has explained. And so certainly in the last you know, year and a half or two years since the start of the coronavirus pandemic, I can't tell you the number of panels I've seen, the number of uh, articles and certainly even testimony on Capitol Hill in the United States where the term infodemic has been invoked. What do you see as the dangers of the use of this term in the present moment? I feel like the dangers are, they happen in two spheres. One is in the people who are actually trying to develop an understanding of what's going on. So then you have a lot of researchers who are actually trying to understand how information spreads online and its consequences. And you see today, when you look at papers using that word, that there is almost no kind of agreed on definition, and it feels like a massive bandwagon. 
I'm not saying there's no good research about it. There is. But there's also a million papers that are completely unrelated and just sort of using the most fashionable term of the time. But that's a concern that really mostly matters for academics and for researchers. The bigger concern here is that a term like that is, as you mentioned, being used in places like governments and used as a very quick way to summarize concerning things happening today, this wild spread of misinformation and its consequences for public health. Yeah, I get it. It is a good term for summarizing things. Of course, that's the reason why it's been used. But there have been already multiple countries. We cite a paper that mentions 18 of them. I'm sure there's more today. Countries that have created, imposed or passed new regulation to kind of tackle the spread of misinformation. And sometimes that means giving the president or prime minister the right to put anyone in jail, anyone who is, according to the government, spreading misinformation, or the right to pass new legislation and approve new budgets without speaking to the Congress in that particular country. That has happened in so many countries. And having a infodemic crisis that is validated by academics and journalists and policymakers kind of becomes like a free pass for anyone, any government to say, well, it's a crisis, we need to jump into a state of emergency. And that is our biggest concern here. That's why when we end the paper, we say, folks, please, let's slow down and be more rigorous because this can have serious real world consequences. I, th I think a big problem here is also the feedback loop between the worlds of academia and journalism and policymaking. So if you have a term that is validated by scientists and then picked up by journalists and sort of spun further and further, it will, of course, end up in, in the halls of policymaking, the halls of Congress and the UK Parliament and the German Bundestag. And all these people, they don't have a lot of time. So they, they have a tendency to, to go towards these things which are easy to understand and easy to grasp and which you can, can use and apply. And that's, that's one thing we, we saw with the infodemic. And of course, this paper by Roxana Rada, who's actually a colleague of ours at the University of Oxford, where she demonstrated that it's very easy with these terms, and fake news is another one. They can be exploited by authoritarian or authoritarian-minded governments to, to then push through uh, laws which are infringing upon human rights, which could tell things like freedom of speech and freedom of expression. And that was something we really worried about. Of course, it's always an issue if, if sort of academics get into something because there's a lot of buzz around. That will always happen. That's fine to some extent. Everyone does it. It's, it's not our major concern. It's more the unintended consequences of such, such a scientifically validated or seemingly scientifically validated concept, which we were quite concerned about. You do give a nod to the idea that the term, even though it is an umbrella and imprecise, could potentially be useful in spurring some positive action and, and coordination and collaboration uh, that people maybe see in it a call to action that's useful. What do you think folks should be doing around the problem of disinformation more broadly and, and perhaps information overload um, as a separate kind of category of concern? My brief answer would be listen to the communication researchers who've done a lot of work, not just in, in recent years, but recent decades, actually, uh, to look at these problems, these issues, and look at the evidence and support them in producing good evidence-based research. Because if you, if you go one step further, if you go away from the hype and away from the people who are either saying there's no problem at all or the people who say 
we're sort of facing doom and the apocalypse. There's a lot of gray in between, a lot of decent research has come out from out in recent years, from cognitive scientists, from communication scientists, from journalism scholars, which demonstrates, for instance, that information abundance, it is to some extent a thing, but the question is always then where do you draw the benchmark, how much information is too much information, and the question is, is it actually a problem for many people? Of course, there's always situations where people feel overwhelmed by information. I feel overwhelmed by information at times. But at the same time, we've all developed processes of, of how to deal with that. So we selectively turn off to certain things. We uh, stop reading the news for a couple of days and then we'll be fine again. And if you, if you look at the actual evidence, if you look at how people deal with information, how they process it, a lot of that actually kind of undermines these claims of the information apocalypse being around the corner. And I think that would be my big plea is listen to these scientists and support the research which tries to, to make good um, evidence-based case for, for what is happening. One of the main messages, and it's probably the last line of the paper, we also wrote a shorter version of it, more like a blog post that was posted on the Oxford Internet Institute's website. The final, the bottom line is that it's probably worth sacrificing a few catchy headlines if that means doing better science, better policy making, not allowing more governments to concentrate power by claiming some kind of crisis. You know, instead of saying there is a wild infodemic spreading over the world, boo, we can probably say something slightly more accurate with, you know, still reaching out to people, but conveying more um, precise and less hyped up information. It's probably worth sacrificing a few headlines. After you publish your paper, the uh, Surgeon General of the United States issued a report on misinformation uh, around the COVID-19 vaccine and its effect on the pandemic here. Having done this work and then having sort of seen that announcement, how did you assess his perspective? Yeah, indeed. That came right after we published it. I overall don't mind it's funny, but we, we are actually not that fussed about the word itself. You know, we could call it infodemic, it could call it banana. It doesn't matter. It's not about the word. It's about, about how it's used. If the word is just a kind of placeholder term to validate whatever a government is thinking, which is usually how these words are used, then we should really just focus on what the actions are going to be. Often the word infodemic and this thinking of information as something that spreads like a virus often it sort of assumes that information is going to spread anyway and there's nothing we can do about it and there's no one behind it. Whereas actually often there is money invested to make these things happen. Overall, uh, my concern is often not in what, in this case, the government is saying about the infodemic itself, but in what measures they're proposing to tackle it. If someone says there's an infodemic, but then they propose a lot of things that are good, that respect people that do not uh, put like freedom of the press in danger, anything like that, then sure, then, then I'm okay with letting people call it an infodemic. That's really not what we're concerned about here. So you're not the word police, but just er arguing more for specificity and precision in the way that we apply this term. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, we're just saying, guys, please don't jump on the bandwagon. But if, let's say, 10 years from now, there is the big discipline of infodemics and that has actually contributed to a lot of good things in the world it's it's okay if it's called infodemics that's fine felix and chico thank you very much thank you for your time thank you
you are enjoying this podcast, consider subscribing. Go to techpolicy.press slash podcast to find a link to subscribe via your favorite podcast service. While you're there, join our newsletter. In the concluding chapter of An Ugly Truth, Inside Facebook's Battle for Domination, Shira Frankel and Cecilia Kong write that Facebook's business is set up to continue to dominate. Absent government intervention, that is almost certainly true. The company has tens of billions in cash reserves, and it just posted a record quarter of revenue, earning $29 billion. But the book is the story of a company that has achieved scale and financial gains at the expense of some pretty important things. Franklin Kong write that throughout Facebook's 17-year history, the social network's massive gains have repeatedly come at the expense of consumer privacy and safety and the integrity of democratic systems. And yet, they write, that's never gotten in the way of its success. If you care about the intersection of technology and democracy, this book is a must-read. It joins books such as Roger McNamee's Zucked, Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe, Siva Vajanathan's Antisocial Media, How Facebook Disconnects Us and Undermines Democracy, and Jose Marichal's Facebook Democracy, The Architecture of Disclosure and the Threat to Public Life, as important chronicles of the rise of Facebook and the challenges it presents to democracies. Through hundreds of interviews, the book reconstructs the internal decision-making process at Facebook on a variety of issues and key controversies. It takes the reader on a journey from the company's founding, including the development of the news feed that became central to Facebook's success, through to the company's paralysis on January 6th as a violent insurrection overran the U.S. Capitol. It describes the company's political calculations during the Trump administration and chronicles how some employees, like Yael Eisenstadt, who's on the tech policy press masthead, sought to get ahead of serious problems like voter suppression, only to be pushed out or how then-head of security Alex Stamos reported evidence of Russian interference in the 2016 election to senior executives to an icy reception. Indeed, according to the book, Stamos had been filing reports about the Russian effort for months and had even warned the FBI, but Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg were purportedly unaware of what the Russians were doing until Stamos took it to them directly after the election. It raises questions about why more executives in the company, when they knew the company was misleading elected officials in the public, did not step forward as whistleblowers. It chronicles an internal debate at the company over whether the architecture of the Facebook platform favors populists like Narendra Modi in India, or Drigo Duterte in the Philippines, or indeed Donald Trump. And it concludes at the moment of Mark Zuckerberg's decision to remove Donald Trump only after the former president's incitement and support of the violence at the Capitol. Franklin Kong note how, in October 2019, when Mark Zuckerberg gave his first major public address on his company's responsibility regarding free speech, he began with a lie, making up an alternative origin story for the company he started. That's the interesting thing about the book's title, An Ugly Truth. It's at once a reference to a controversial memo written by a Facebook executive, Andrew Bosworth, in which he justified the company's focus on growth as an effort to connect people across the globe and to the reality that the connections it creates are not primarily for the public good, but for profit. 
An Ugly Truth is, in fact, a book about obfuscations and deceit, and I'd argue about the lies that Mark Zuckerberg continues to tell himself. Now, let's hear from the book's authors. So congratulations on the book. The reception has been incredible. This is not the first interview that you've done about it by a long shot, certainly not going to be the last. So I want to ask you a few questions, not just about the book, but also about the reception that you've had to it. Uh, It's been a couple of weeks now. You've been out on the road. You've had a pretty extensive media tour and uh, done lots of events, including a handful of Twitter spaces and clubhouses and things of that nature. How do you sort of characterize the response so far? I mean, obviously it's on the New York Times bestseller list, but how do you feel about it a couple of weeks in? And maybe Shira, we'll start with you. I think we've both been really heartened by the response. It's been amazing, you know, after years of working on a book to see it out in the world and to hear, you know, everyone from from members of Congress to employees at tech companies really respond positively has, you know, for, for me, it's, it's, it's really just been a dream. I, I uh, was just talking to Cecilia earlier this day about an employee at one of the, the big Silicon Valley um, social media companies telling me that they were reading our book as a kind of manual of like a what not to do um, list. And um, no, I mean, really studying the book. And I, and I think that is sort of the most we could have hoped for. Yeah, I would just, you know, I would echo everything that Shira said. And I would just add that it's been so satisfying and gratifying to hear from many of the people who we spoke to for this book, who have been telling us, you got it, you just nailed it, you got it right. And, you know, and and other people coming to us who weren't part of the process of this book, coming to us and saying, you know, I was also in that meeting and that was absolutely what happened. And we're so glad that that story is out. The other thing that I would say is that we've been so, it's been so satisfying to see the, how, how people are so engaged with the themes that we brought up um, because we tried to cover so much. We really tried to focus on the problem with misinformation and how that started coming from the tools and the technology, but absolutely the business model as well, and really explore the leadership and decisions and the culture within. I mean, we just, it was, it was a hard book because we tried to do so much. And I think that like what we've been hearing is a lot of people got it. They just, they get it. And it's, it resonates. I think one person said it to me really well recently when she said, you know, you connected all the dots that needed to be connected. And now I'm thinking about this story differently. And I thought I knew everything there was to know about Facebook. So just for the sake of my listeners, can you reflect just for, for an instant or two on the reporting process for this? Because you, you did, you talked to hundreds of people. Um, how, how does it work when, you, when you're pulling together a project like this? Well, you know, we, as reporters, we often start with what's already in our notebooks. Both Cecilia and I had written so much about Facebook over the years and seen this pattern emerge of a problem being brought to light or a mistake becoming public and Facebook apologizing and promising to do better. And so we started with the notes that we already had from from conversations and articles we had done with the New York Times and looked at the nuance. You know, I think what you can do with a book that's unique is um, really flush out what a scene feels like and what a meeting feels like. And, you know, we tried to, to go to as many sources as we could because we wanted as many different perspectives. Of the 400 people we spoke to for the book, the vast majority still work at Facebook. And so if one of them 
gave us a telling of a particular meeting or a particular scene, we then went and independently tried to find other people that had also been in the room because we wanted to know like, oh, well, is that just a single person's opinion or did multiple people in the room get that same feeling coming out of that meeting? Were they all affected by the same way um, by what Mark Zuckerberg said? And so we were able to really, I think, create a, a, a more cohesive story out of all those interviews. Clearly, Facebook pushed back uh, almost in a boilerplate way. They said, you know, this is one of, mm-hmm. yeah, they mentioned this number, this magic number of 367 books. <laughs> I'm not sure where they got that one and disputed some of the instances in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, at this point, though, who are Facebook's defenders? And mm-hmm. have you found any of them out there? Are there, are there others that have pushed back on the book uh, apart from the company itself? I mean, I, I really hope that doesn't come across as like cavalier or, or, or arrogant, but no, no, nobody's been pushing back on the book. Um, I just feel like if anything, we're hearing more reinforcing um, feedback. And again, not from people who we just, we've already talked to, but from a lot of new people who we're talking to. And we're also just like curious and we're still reporting. We're talking, we're trying to reach other people. It's not just people who self, you know, identify, like volunteer to, to come to us. So we're, we're hearing from all kinds of people and trying to find out like what their impressions are. And we just keep hearing that's right. You know, or, or we're hearing like, well, I, I, you know, I think that that's right. I don't know enough and I want to learn more. And I think that's really satisfying as far as like Facebook's defense goes. I mean, I just think that like, it's the, the evidence is clear in the book, like everything. And we wrote, write this in the author's note, as Shira said, everything is multiply sourced. We went through a very thorough fat checking process with Facebook. Um, it was months long, um, hundreds of points that we ran by them. Every single scene should not be a surprise, should not have been a surprise by the time the book was published. So, um, so no, the one thing that I think, you know, I don't want to go too much on the defensive because I don't think there's a lot to defend, but I do think that what's really important for people to know is that we want to defend our sources because Facebook has talked about how these are all disgruntled people who talk to us. And that's just simply not the case. I mean, we can't go deeply into who our sources are at all, or much more beyond the fact that we really think it's important for people to know that many of the people there who spoke to us really like what they do. They believe they're doing something important and they spoke to us because they saw something that they felt like was that was wrong and they wanted it to be corrected, or at least they wanted the true story to be to come out. Can you maybe give a little bit of detail to a couple of the lines of criticism against Facebook where you feel the, the company's critics overreach or go too far? You know, I think that there are people who believe that Facebook is acting out of bad faith, that Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg either don't care or cavalier about the harms they do to people. And I would just say that one thing we found is that they often do feel really badly about things that have happened on the platform, whether that's Cambridge Analytica, Russian election interference, or, you know, the violence in Myanmar. I, I, you know, we've spoken to multiple people who say that, that executives of the company have shed tears over what happened in Myanmar. And so I think for us, you know, I think it's important that people know that it's not as though these, well, you know, billionaire sort of leaders of Facebook, it's not that they don't care. It's, it's more a question of what are they doing to change things? What are they going to do differently at the company once they learn about their mistakes? So the book does focus the mind both on organizational questions, questions of scale around the company, but also these individuals, especially, of course, Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg, 
to, to the question of change, do you think it's in Mark Zuckerberg to accomplish the kind of change that the book suggests the company needs? You know, it's it's hard to say because what we have heard from people within Facebook is that the one thing that would need to change is really Mark Zuckerberg. And he would need to accept some level of oversight on his position. He would need to relinquish some of his control of the company and perhaps put himself in a more vulnerable position so that he has to accept criticism and he has to accept the opinions of others. Right now, Facebook's board is really just there in an advisory role. And all, all those things I just said, it does, doesn't seem likely that that Mark Zuckerberg is, is going to do them. Uh, people close to him say that he's more intent than ever to be the leader of Facebook and to continue to lead Facebook into the future. One of the things I've gotten the sense listening to him in the recent congressional testimony is that he does seem to feel more definitive that Facebook is not to be blamed for some of the things that mm. it's being blamed for. His dismissal of responsibility around January 6th, for instance, seemed to be much more definitive than past dismissals around prior uh, conflicts and, and controversies. Um, do, you, do you feel like that's true? Or do you, do you think that on some level, Mark Zuckerberg is, is hardening? I think Mark Zuckerberg is actually from pretty early on thought that other people have it wrong and other people are blaming Facebook too much. And certainly Sheryl Sandberg has felt like that way for quite some time. But I do think that the decision by Facebook very recently to blame the White House for scapegoating Facebook when it comes to COVID misinformation is just part of a very long pattern where, I mean, just culturally, and you know, I've covered Silicon Valley companies for quite some time. Like there's, I think the defensiveness that comes from Facebook feels, feels a little bit more pronounced from Facebook than other companies. So I don't know if he's hardened in that way, but I definitely feel like that there was a broad agreement within Facebook starting from 2016 when revelations first began of interference on the platform um, for the election and then Cambridge Analytica and then misinformation related to COVID and then the January 6th rights, one thing after another, Facebook felt like it was always the easy company to blame. And you hear that still now. And we've heard in our reporting that you know, Mark Zuckerberg, Sheryl Sandberg, and others said that the media was over-indexing in our coverage of Facebook scandals because they were jealous. Because they, meaning the media, the company was accusing the media of being jealous of Facebook's success and destroying the business model of journalism, which just can't be true. Like we're this is a we're in the business of accountability journalism, and that's this is a big and powerful company. So of course we're going to write about the scandals, especially those that are so profound, like the ones at Facebook. Reading the book and thinking about the sort of succession of, of things, whether it's Russian election interference, January 6th, uh, the question of, of COVID-19 misinformation, um, there's often this sort of issue of at first a denial um, and then uh, an attempt by the company to sort of reframe the question. We saw that most recently with Guy Rosen's post around COVID-19. Then there's been this issue, which Shira brought out in her subsequent reporting, around just the sort of presence or, or lack thereof of the proof, the data that would, mm. you know, solve the debate about whether, in fact, Facebook is taking too much of the blame or just the right amount or too little. Do you think that uh, this latest issue with the White House, do you think at this point, I don't know, anything will change? We'll get to the point where the next time that uh, that data science team says we need the budget to look into 
whether the platform is responsible for polarization or the problem with vaccine adoption in the United States or what have you, that, that, that they'll get those resources and be able to answer those questions? I don't know. I mean, I, I would hope so. I think, again, there's been a pattern laid out in our book where this isn't the first time that an internal you know, an employee internally has raised a question or issued a warning and said, you know, we should put more resources here or we should spin up a team to investigate that and has been either not given those resources or has has been ignored. So, yes, I mean, I, I'm always hopeful that companies listen to their own employees more, their own experts more. You know, many people, including the White House, would like to see that change. All this does, you know, bring up the issue of scale, um, the, the the fact that this company is so massive, that these these problems are on some level so big, the numbers are so big, the data is so big. Um, it, you know, is that is that the fundamental issue? Is this thing just simply too large for anyone to get a handle on, much less an individual like Mark Zuckerberg? What I do think is really important before they get to the scale is to understand that growth is the most important goal. So growth and engagement, attention, all those things have led to scale, right? It's led to the scale of the amount of data they have. It's led to them trying to, like the network effects and getting so many new users. So yes, scale is a huge problem in that they do not have commensurate guardrails in place. Like in other words, they don't have the precautions when it comes to safety, privacy, and other things at scale. That is a big problem. If there's any company that can catch up, it is Facebook with the resources they have. But what we do show though, is that even when they do try to catch up in the book, we show that when it comes to, for example, Russian election interference, there was plenty of warning ahead of time. The security team was tiny and they were trying to get reports up escalated up to Zuckerberg and others, top executives, warning of interference they were seeing, especially towards the end in 2017 on Russian, Russian bot ads and organic content. And time and time again, they were ignored. So it's not even just that they are not scaling their, their security and safety operations at the same time, commensurate to the scale. They're avoiding and delaying. And we show in many instances in the book, often with many, many warnings, perhaps intentionally, they're avoiding addressing these things for far, far too long. I want to maybe focus in a little bit on January 6th as, as an example of this, because one of the things that confused me in reading the book and, and also just on you know, following the, the history of this, if you look back sort of September, August, September of, of 2020, you know, Mark Zuckerberg himself was saying, there's a real chance there may be civil unrest, violence after the election. He put a lot of his own personal money at stake uh, or into election defense, donating it to try to, to help with the election security issues. It struck me as really strange then to then also read in your book that the company on some level seemed flat-footed when it came to January 6th. Uh, and when the violence that took place, they, they seemed to you know, want to deny that anything on the platform had played any role. How do you, how do you kind of square all that? Um, you know, on some of you, you sort of feel like Zuckerberg was prepared for the 2020 election, perhaps more so than ever before, was saying some of the right things in the fall. And then, you know, a couple of days later, you've got Sheryl Sandberg suggesting we had nothing to do with any of this. Right. I mean, look, I, I think Mark Zuckerberg and, and really Facebook, I would add that the security team at Facebook were prepared for a lot in the 2020 elections. They were prepared for foreign election interference 
And we saw them monthly issuing these reports about taking down Russian networks, Iranian networks. They were finding these these new foreign networks as quickly as they were being launched to ensure that what happened in 2016 couldn't happen again. And in some ways, that they were fighting the battle of 2016, but in 2020. Now, what they were not prepared for, and I think what they really struggled with, was misinformation that was being shared by Americans to other Americans, especially when some of that misinformation was being driven by the president of the United States. And this was kind of um, a corner that they backed themselves into when they decided that Trump was going to get a special carve out on their platform to be able to say things and post things that the average Facebook user was not able to do. And so you had the president of the United States, even before the elections, telling people that there was going to be voter fraud and that the voting system shouldn't be trusted. Now, if you, the average Facebook user posted some of those things, they would be taken down. But he was posting it. And so therefore, they were allowing it to spread. And between when the vote happened in November and the Capitol Hill riots happened in January, on January 6th, ferment and unrest and anger was growing on Facebook. They were watching this happen. And they they took down some of the groups that were claiming stop the steal, this idea that, that the election had been stolen from Donald Trump, but they let others persist. And again, we saw a very kind of haphazard approach where they weren't quite sure what to do about a lot of these groups. And their own security experts were telling them anger is really boiling over, like it's it's getting really out of hand on Facebook. And that's why they were sitting in that room watching the events of January 6th unfold, because they knew themselves that there was going to be a potential for violence on that day. Do you think on some level Facebook has a wrong set of assumptions about America? I remember there was one particular Facebook employee that when he left, he he made some kind of post where he said, you know, the types of problems we've seen elsewhere in the world are coming here now. And we're going to see these types of problems in the United States. And I think what he was referring to somewhat was, you know, political violence, loss of trust in institutions, some of the things that happen, perhaps we, we associate with happening elsewhere in the world, happening here, because the situation here is degraded, certainly from where it was when Facebook launched in 2004. Maybe a set of assumptions that the company has about what goes on in the United States or, or, or what the, the threat landscape is here that is wrong? There's some things that are country specific, right? Like I think you would you could make the argument that in many countries, including Myanmar's most stark example, the things that went wrong on Facebook led to really sort of horrible real life consequences because they didn't have a free press, they didn't have NGOs, government institutions that were you know acting um, responsibly to deliver you know information. Um, accurate information to people. And so all they had was Facebook. And so Myanmar was kind of a perfect case study of what happens when all you have is Facebook and the information on Facebook is hate speech and misinformation. Here in the United States, we have a lot of safeguards, right? Like not every American, but quite a few Americans do believe institutions like the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and they trust them to deliver accurate journalism. And so you have that perhaps pushing against potential misinformation on Facebook. I just think that what happened in the rest of the world could have served as more of a warning to Facebook. Human beings are human beings. And if you give them an algorithm that promotes the most emotive content, the most emotive content is often going to be things that anger people or produce, you know, a response of frustration or, you know, it's going to produce an extreme emotional response. And so you should know that if you if you create algorithms that surface that stuff, wherever you are in the world, that is going to probably drive people towards emotive content. Yeah, I mean, one thing that I would add is that what we saw and what we reported in the book is that 
especially over the last few years, Mark Zuckerberg has made the decisions when it comes to the technologies as well as the policy decisions. So it is really important to understand also that we are also seeing his evolution when it comes to content, moderating content, and how misinformation should be handled. That's a lot of responsibility and power held by one person. And that has been a problem. And many people in the book say so, that and there's, there's nobody inside nor outside the company at this point, especially and within the board, who are really who really oversee him, that, that serve as a check. So I think, you know, when, when asking, it's hard to get into like the, the culture and like what, what they look into. I don't, I definitely think that their priority is the business and growth. But as far as like their assumptions about Americans, I think that a lot of decisions we can say are being made by one person and, you know, we're seeing him kind of mature in real time and evolve in his thinking. Like he gave us that that very famous speech at Georgetown. We have that in the book where he even shocks a lot of people within the company and it describes the full expression philosophy that he has and that more speech will drown bad speech. And he course corrects when it comes to the pandemic and COVID misinformation, and that becomes a priority. And he course corrects again when it comes to Donald Trump after January 6th. So it's, we're seeing how one person's decision display a point of view for the whole company. Let me ask a a question about uh, one check that Mark Zuckerberg has essentially introduced for himself, which is the oversight board. In some ways, I feel like your book is coming out at the beginning of this maybe new period for Facebook. The existence of the oversight board almost coincides with the, you know, the maybe getting close to where you finished the book, I assume, in terms of its operation. Are, are there any early indications from your perspective of whether the oversight board can be the check that the company needs to? to right its past wrongs and to, to get onto a different trajectory? I, you know, I think a lot of people welcome the oversight board as a group of independent experts. I mean, many of the people on that board have years of expertise in subjects that the average Facebook employee does not, nor does the average member of their, their policy team. And so their thinking on this, I think, is, is really valuable for Facebook. However, you know, this is a big caveat. They have no authority, right? They, they can only make recommendations, and it's up to Facebook whether or not it accepts those recommendations. And as we saw with um, the account, the Facebook account of President Donald Trump, they, they, I think, very wisely said, in this case, you have not created policies or rules to explain your decision for removing President Donald Trump. And instead, you've kind of punted the decision to us and tried to get us to make a call for you. But we're, you know, we can't make a decision for you without you enacting basic policies for us to look at. And so they ultimately handed that one back to Facebook and said, no, you've got to figure this one out for yourself. So I still, I think we're still seeing the board sort of emerge and find its footing. And for it to be, I think, a more sort of uh, value and, and to have a greater impact, it would be interesting to see them actually given authority um, to make decisions. I think you did say that they, the oversight board essentially gave Zuckerberg the perfect out on Trump early on. To some extent, they they did turn that back around on him, and I, I guess a lot of folks uh, are hoping that exactly as you say that they'll be given a bit more teeth in terms of the types of recommendations that they can make and and the extent to which the company's held to that. 
Let me ask just a couple of more questions. Thinking back now over the types of questions you've got in every event you've done and things perhaps you've learned since, it's only been a, a little while, but if there was one piece of the book you could go back to and either add to, or you know, I'm not going to ask you to back check yourself or tell me what you might change, but if there was one piece you wish you could go back and you know unearth uh, more on or, or or get into more depth on that you think would be important to uh, continue to pursue, what would it be? There is a, a lot on the cutting room floor, and a, a much longer version of this this book was um, in draft form. <laughs> and one thing that we both were really hoping to explore more, and th- it was the right decision to, to produce the book in the form right now, because we also wanted to move fast and we think it does for people to read. But um, we had so much more on sort of uh, on Zuckerberg and Facebook's position on global expansion and why that was so important for them. And Myanmar was a really important chapter and we're so glad that that was in, but we had so much more on like Zuckerberg courting China and Narendra Modi and India and trying to get into those markets and how that was a huge goal for them. I think that that would have been really important because it is such a global company and and we would, we would have liked to have a little bit more global perspective. That's so interesting. And I do think that, that it strikes me those are probably the stories you'll be writing for the next uh, year or two. Sure, are there any, anything that you would add to that in terms of what you'd be keen to go yeah, back and do more on? No, absolutely. I mean, I agree with Cecilia. I think both of us really felt like we could have included a lot more about what was happening in the rest of the world because there are so many interesting case studies about you know India, Sri Lanka, um, the Philippines that that we wish we could have included in this book and and really delved a little bit more into how Facebook entered those markets and what the effects have been. The January 6th Select Committee is about to get underway yes. this week. Um, Nancy Pelosi has included in the legislation establishing it some language to do with online platforms. Any indications either from your reporting for the book or uh, otherwise about uh, how how Facebook intends to uh, comport itself with the committee um, or what we can expect in terms of what the committee will will do with regard to social media? As far as, I mean, I think that Facebook will say that they want to cooperate with the committee. I think it, there's going to be really interesting things that come from discovery. And as the committee starts to investigate this more, already we've seen so much come out in the indictments, things that Facebook itself initially denied not that they happened, but the, but the extent to which Facebook was an organizing platform for these groups that did storm the Capitol. So that will be quite interesting. I just think that being an observer of Washington and reporting in Washington for so long, it's really going to be hard to, to do something actionable after the committee's um, findings that does not curb speech in a way that all Americans can feel comfortable about that. So, you know, Shira and I have talked a lot about how there is a way to look at misinformation and speech and especially the spread of violent speech to be very like almost like scalpel like in the the sort of approach to it to be very specific about things that just should not be permissible not necessarily as law but even just across industries the standard well i'll just tell you both um you know as someone who teaches on technology media and democracy this book will 100% be on the syllabus um i suspect oh thank you oh, thank you Years to come. So I'm very grateful uh, for all the effort that you've put into this um, and and very grateful that you took the time to speak to me. Well, you're so welcome. But thank you also for your interest. And we follow you a lot on Twitter and we know you're on it. So thank you. (laughs) Thank you. And I wish you both a good afternoon.
You too. Take Thank care. You. That's it for this week's show. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones, and our Tech Kids Unlimited intern, Nolan Duarte. Thanks to our guests, and of course, thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.